This episode of the Lacey School of Business Ethics Series is brought to you by the Old National Bank. This conversation with Mr. Robert G. Jones, Senior Advisor of Ethical Leadership for the Butler University Lacey School of Business and former Chairman of Old National Bank Corp. Hilly Buttrick, Interim Dean for the Lacey School of Business, will lead Mr. Jones through a discussion of his philosophy on leadership and the challenges and opportunities leaders are facing in the pandemic. Good morning, Bob. It's delightful to have this opportunity to chat with you this morning. Today, we're going to be speaking to a variety of Butler advisory and alumni boards, uh, and we're engaging in a discussion about ethical leadership. To start, I wonder if you could explain your philosophy on the relationship between ethics and leadership. Well, first of all, let me just thank all of those that are on the phone for their support of Butler. Um, you know, Butler's got a special place in my heart because of their deep passion for really you know, the Butler way to me epitomizes what ethics and leadership are all about. So thank you for your service. And <clears throat> I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Hillary. Um, Hillary is, is really the reason that Butler and Lacey has become so focused on ethics. So Hillary, thank you for that. Um, to, get, to answer your question, you know, as I think about ethics, I think about leadership. For me, it's very hard to disengage the two. Um, you know, you can be a manager and people will do what you tell them to do or you can be a leader and people will follow you because you're doing the right thing. And I've always believed that a leader casts a shadow and that shadow is such an important part of ethics because people watch and see what you do, even in moments when you don't think you're in that shadow or you're casting that shadow. And a great leader is somebody that is always doing the right thing no matter what. And to me, that defines what leadership is all about. So. You know, I, I can't separate ethics from leadership. Uh, to me, a great leader is ethical. And, you know, in today's environment, it's so critical to all of us. You were the leader of Old National for many years. And under your watch, Old National became recognized as one of the world's most ethical companies by Ethisphere, which is quite, um, quite an accomplishment and quite a recognition. Old National's strong commitment to ethics continues today under the leadership of Jim Ryan. What would you say are some of Old National's core ethical principles? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Um, we had a philosophy at the bank, and Jim continues it today, that if it's right for our associates, it's right for our clients and their communities, and then it's going to be right for our shareholders. Uh, you know, it's really about always doing what's right. And, and every decision, you know, there's a subtlety in what I just said. The, the equation for a lot of corporations starts with the shareholder first. And the Board of Old National said, you know, we really want to do what's right for our associates, we want to do what's right for our clients, we want to do what's right for our communities, then that's going to be right for the shareholder. And, that, you know, that's a longer view. Um, and, and so many corporations today take that short view, which is what's right for the shareholder, and then the other three happen into that. So, you know, that's always been our philosophy. Uh, I'm going to digress for just one second here, Hillary, if you don't mind. You mentioned Jim Ryan and um, for those of you that uh, are on the phone, that either in your organizations or your volunteer roles, I think one of the things I'm most proud about at, uh, at Old National is the wonderful job we've done with uh, succession planning. And uh, I would just encourage all of you, as you think about your organizations, to make sure that you think about succession planning and blending culture into that succession planning. You know, um, I've said many times, Jim Ryan is far smarter than I ever was. He's got a bigger heart than I ever did. And he's so well prepared to do the job. And that's a real testament to our board that really focus on it. And part of that whole process for them 
was really around culture and values and ethics. And, you know, Jim has done a, a remarkable job of that. But I think, again, the encouragement I would give everybody is you know, begin thinking today for 15 years down the road. Great. You mentioned the role of culture. I wonder if you can talk about how you perceive organizational culture as being um, essential in creating an ethical organization. Yeah, culture's everything. You know, I think there's a, I'll probably screw this up, but you know, there used to be a saying that, uh, you know, uh, culture trumps strategy all day long. Um, and it's true. If you can create the right culture in your company and your volunteer areas, uh, nonprofits, uh, things will work you know, far, far better. You know, you, you can walk into a company and you'll know what their culture is. And, and I spent a large portion of my career as a commercial lender. And when you went and visited a company, you knew pretty quickly whether they had a good culture or not. And sometimes their balance sheet and income statement might look good, but you just didn't feel comfortable with the culture that they had. So uh, creating the right culture is so critical. Um, and for us at Old National, it was really, our board started with thinking, believing, I should say, that ethics was the most important thing we had. And as you think about what a commercial bank is, we're entrusted with people's money. Uh, we're entrusted with people's futures. And if you don't have that value set at the very high level saying we're going to do everything that's right for our clients, our communities, and our associates, then, you know, it, 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 you know, it really flies in the face of what you are as a commercial bank. It's, it's very clear that Old National places ethics at really the center of its operations. Um, and that's, of course, the right thing to do. But I always try to impress on my students that there are also benefits to that. So mm -hmm. what are some of the, the benefits and, and the, the advantages to placing ethics at the center of what your organization does? Yeah, because again, a culture attracts too. You know, you think about, uh, I can't, you know, there's so many of our associates that joined the team joined because of the culture that we'd established. Um, we would get business opportunities because people just knew that, hey, Old National was there, you know, when the pandemic hit, Jim Ryan was one of the first people to raise his hand and say, what can we do to support our communities? And, you know, Old National gave a $1.5 million within two weeks of the, you know, the pandemic hitting. But it's more than just the dollars in a sense. It's the hours that our associates put into their communities. And, so many times I'd visit a market and they'd say, you know, everywhere we turn, there's somebody from Old National helping and doing something. And we just value what you guys do so much. So, you know, that reputation you have, you, you can spend millions and millions of dollars on radio spots and TV spots and billboards. But the value that you get is your associates being out in the community and living that value set and people saying, boy, those people at Old National, they've got strong ethics. They're committed to their communities. They're doing the right thing. Um, you attract customers, you attract people, um, and it makes life so much easier, too. When we think of ethical leadership, we often think of a few action items that we would like to see our, our leaders do. We think about developing our people, building trust in our organization, and serving our constituents in a meaningful way. What steps can leaders take to further those, those three goals? Yeah, you know, I'm going to go back to what I opened with, which is the shadow of the leader and, you know, just doing what's right all the time. And, it, and it's, you, 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 you underestimate how value, how powerful that shadow is. And it's the little things when, if you happen to have a, you know, a cafeteria and, you know, allowing people to go in front of you instead of, you know, I'm the CEO, I have to go first. And, you know, it's the subtle little things that you do that make a difference. And, you know, I always, uh, I've, 
I'm the king of really stupid analogies and I'll use one now, which is for me, you know, uh, culture building, communications, relationship building is a lot like dating. And I was a really bad dater. So it's a bad analogy for me, but you, you do the little things first, right? You know, you just don't have your first date and say, do you want to get married? You've got to build that culture. You've got to build that relationship. And it's all the little things that you do that build culture. And, you know, it's the, the visible things are clearly there, but it's the small things that you do that makes the difference. And I think part of what you have to do is in that mental Rolodex you have in your brain is always to make sure you put ethics and values first, and then every decision flows from there. I know you've been involved in many philanthropic and nonprofit endeavors um, in addition to your work at Old National. Can you tell us about some of the specific sort of volunteer work you've done? Um, you know, uh, it, yeah, it's um, a lot of it around uh, kids. You know, I'm on the board of Riley uh, Children's Hospital. I did a lot of work with youth resources, uh, Indiana Youth Institute, a number of organizations. But you, you, you do it for, you know, I'm going to use the same analogy, Hillary, you, you do it for the right reasons. You know, so many people either want to pad their resume or they want to be on the boards because they think there's a business opportunity. But I just, uh, I was always encouraged to find something that I had a passion for. And for me, it's, it's always been our, our, our young adults and our, our kids that are coming through school and trying to give them a role model. You know, I'm, a, I'm a sing, from a single parent household and, you know, I was raised by my grandmother and so many mentors and uh, coaches and teachers were good to me that, you know, I always believed in paying forward. So if there's a way that I can be involved in a nonprofit organization that helps those that are less fortunate and particularly our youth, that's going to make a difference. And again, I would just encourage people as they're doing that is to always put those ethical decisions, you know, again, you got to do what's right. You're the, you're the fiduciary of the money and the donor's money. And, you know, making sure that's invested correctly and doing the right thing is just so important. And, and there's, a, there's a value, you know, I just digress again for a second, you know, we get so consumed in our day-to-day -day jobs and, you know, all the pressures that we see. And, you know, I can just say I'm glad I'm retired during the pandemic because to deal with what uh, Jim and you and others are dealing with today is difficult. But, you know, when you can have a chance to leave your day-to-day -day job and, you know, for me to go to Riley and do a board meeting and then take a tour or meet a Riley patient, you know, it just puts things in perspective, right? You know, as tough as things are today, there are people that have things a heck of a lot more difficult than we do. And, you know, that's part of the reason you, you do the volunteer work is to really give yourself another avenue to put your energy and focus. So if you were going to give advice to um, folks who are on advisory boards um, or looking for ways to get involved, um, what would you say are the key obligations that somebody who's going to commit to be part of a philanthropic or nonprofit advisory board are? Yeah, I think it starts with what I said before. You do it for the right reason. You know, you, you hate to see resume patterns or people that come in just to say that, hey, I have a chance to sit next to Dave Ricks at a meeting and, you know, the CEO of Lilly. You know, it's, uh, you, you need to do it for the right reason. Again, that's that ethical compass that all of us should have. And secondly, do something you have passion for. Um, you know, it, it, it's so easy in Indiana to get involved in about anything you want to because people are looking for great leaders. So people are going to look for the Michael Loftons and the Jenny Joneses and the Hillary Buttricks of the world because they, they care. They're good people. They know the Butler way and they do the things that are right. And, you know, and then when you do it, you know, you commit to it. It's, it's you know, it's, it's 
maybe two more hours a week that you have to do or three more hours a week. But again, that diversional ability to have something that's different than kind of takes your mind off the day-to-day challenges of our jobs makes a big difference. And it makes you feel better. I mean, quite frankly, you know, when you work at a food bank and you're loading food into a box and you're putting it in the uh, the back of a truck and, you know, people go, you know, you know, there's an executive from old national bank that's loading, you know, Hey, we, you know, we're no different than anybody else. And it just, it makes you feel good. It's the right thing to do. Yeah. What would you say to those folks who are thinking about getting involved, but are, are having that moment of saying, I have so, so, so much on my plate right now. And I I don't know that I have any more to give. How would you um, encourage them or advise them? Well, I would encourage them to do it. Uh, And, you know, part of that is this work-life balance is that um, you you need to make time for yourself. Um, And, you know, one one of the things I'm going to go back to my shadow again, which seems to be the redundancy of the day. But, you know, if if you're coming into the office at 530 and you're working to 730, well, guess what all your associates are going to do? Well, he's in, I got to do that too. Um, but if you come in at, you know, you're, you know, an early hour and you leave by five or five thirty, and you either go to your kid's soccer game or you go and you say, I want to go volunteer or, you know, one of the things we did at Old National, we allowed each associate two hours a month to go off and volunteer because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, I wouldn't say to anybody that feels overwhelmed with their daily job because they just don't think they have enough hours in the day to get it done you'll find that if you take that little bit of time to give yourself a me time and some time to, you know, fill up a, another opportunity void in our brains to do something different, you're going to find you're going to be much more productive because you're not just consumed with what you're doing on a daily basis. And, you know, it's that, uh, you know, there's this uh, old psychological thing called Drotter's circle. And, you know, if your circle's overwhelmed, then you, you're not effective, but, inside Drotter's circle, there's variants that you talk about. There's your job, your family, and your outside life. And you've got to be able to balance all three of those. I want to shift now to talk about sort of um, the, the role that we see businesses playing, the role that we see philanthropic organizations playing and educators playing um, in our current national discussion around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, what role do you see uh, ethical leadership playing in ensuring that our workplaces and our educational settings create a place of belonging for all people, regardless of their background? Yeah, it, it's such a great question and so pertinent today that it, it's really the culture you create. And, you know, it, 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 we've evolved over time. We used to talk a lot about diversity and then, you know, what really we've evolved to is really inclusion. You have to create a culture that everyone feels a part of. And we all need to remember that we're not all the same. And it's not just the color of our skin, our sexual orientation, our religion, our, um, whether we're male or female. And, and I'll use a great example. And probably one of the greatest life lessons I've ever had is um, when I was in Columbus, Ohio, um, uh, I was uh, running a small business lending group and I wanted to hire this young African-American from another bank. And I was going to meet him at the downtown luncheon club and it was called the capital club at the time and made the appointment. And unfortunately I got, uh, I couldn't make the appointment. I got something happened and I called and left a message. And, you know, unfortunately he was there about 10 or 15 minutes before they got the message and said, Mr. Jones won't be here. 
I call him back up. I apologize. And he said, well, that's fine. I said, I'd like to meet you again. He goes, well, I want you to meet me at the Macon Grill. Uh, the Macon Grill was in the inner city of Columbus uh, in an all black area. Uh, I went there a few minutes early because I didn't want to be late. Well, he purposely was 15 minutes late. And I sat in there and I was in my three-piece suit. Um, I was the only white person in the bar. Um, and I would tell you, I was in, enormously uncomfortable. He came in, I shook my hand, he sat down, he looked me in the eye, he goes, now you know how I feel. And it was a great life lesson because so many times we, we think the, 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 the space we live in is the only space. And I think any great leader has to empathize with you know, everyone's needs and desires and uh, interests are different and everybody's background is not the same. And you have to create a culture where everyone feels comfortable and you have to allow people to be comfortable. You know, um, you know, I think about single parents or couples that both work and during the pandemic and the things they're going through. As a leader, you got to make sure you're empathizing with those people and doing the right thing. And, you know, um, it's not enough to say I support uh a culture, you have to live it. You have to breathe it. You have to work it. You know, and I think this week, you know, Charlie Scharf, the CEO of Wells Fargo, comes out with a memo that says there aren't enough blacks to hire because they're not qualified. I mean, good Lord. I mean, they're not qualified to meet, you know, what he considers in his little box, but it's not the box you have to worry about. It's really the whole environment. And people will perform at a high level when you give them that opportunity. Mm-hmm. What do you think businesses and um, educators can do to create more of those opportunities? Be very direct and very forthright about it. And it's not a marketing, uh, it's not a communications. It's, it's about doing it, right? And it's about creating opportunities. It's about investing. It's about promoting. It's about embracing differences. Um, it's about, you know, just, you know, it's the old Nike thing, just do it. Um, you know, so many times we talk the game and we put the money against it, but we don't change. Um, you know, you know, what a great, uh, you know, month this was when Citicorp named a female as the CEO of, you know, what, you know, one of the largest banks in the world. Um, but there needs to be more of that. Um, and sometimes you just got to do it right. You know, if it, you know, that the NFL, um, probably it's not working as the fact they had the Rooney rule, which is in order to hire somebody, you have to interview at least a few people of color. Um, well, you know what? It's not just the interview. You have to make people have that opportunity. And you have to create a culture, Hillary, that understands inclusivity. Um, you know, so many people say, well, you know, I, only, I don't see color. Well, I would argue you do need to see color because you need to understand what it's like to grow up as an African-American in an all-white world. It's different. And you have to create a culture in your company that allows them to feel comfortable. They need to walk in that building and see people look like them and act like them. And I tell you, that doesn't happen enough. And as you know, and, and as we all know, we are living in a very tumultuous time. We are in the midst of this global pandemic. Many Americans are facing uh, the most significant economic hardships of their lives. We're in the midst of a expansive national conversation about racial injustice and a contentious election season. Um, our employees, the people we work with, are absorbing a lot of environmental stress right now. Um, how can leaders support those around them during this time? Um, 
In other words, how do we lead the members of our team when it feels like there's crisis all around us? Yeah. So first of all, you need to be visible, you know, uh, communicate, be visible. Uh, now's not the time to hide in our offices and get uh, consumed with paperwork. Uh, now more than ever, our leaders need to be visible. And, and it, it, you know, one of the other things I think is really important right now is empathy. Um, you know, there's a difference, you know, sympathy, you walk by and you say to, you know, Michael, or you say to Rob, you know, hey, you know, I feel bad, right? Empathy says, I understand what you're going through. Um, empathy says, what can I do to help you? And if you're a leader and you're just offering those subtle words, it makes a huge difference. And, you know, one of the tricks that uh, I learned early in my career is to go off and do the, uh, do something different for somebody. So in your case, Hillary, I might walk by and you're having a really bad day and say, hey, why don't you just go home? Go home to your kids, go home, have a glass of wine, take a break. Um, and, and that's showing a degree of empathy that says, I understand you're going through some really difficult times and, you know, just sitting down and talking, you know, it's, um, you know, there's a, you know, the old, old saying management by walking around, right. And sitting down in somebody's office and just saying, tell me what's going on. How are you feeling? Uh, what can I do to make a difference? Um, and, and, you know, it, again, I would argue today that 90% of your effort needs to be out uh, and 10% is the, you know, the administrative BS we all have to do. But I think right now where people really need to see us and know that we care, we empathize with what they're going through and just discuss it. You know, sometimes they just want to talk mm -hmm. um, or they want to know that it's okay to be emotional at times. It's, it, it, we're, we're dealing with, you know, th things that none of us ever predicted would happen, but, um, you know, we're going to get through it. You have to give hope too. you know, you have to say, you know, we're going to get through this. Um, the pandemic will end, the election will end. Um, you know, uh, you hope to hell we get some redu reduction in the tension and we, you know, we understand that all lives and black lives do matter and things are important. So, um, but we'll get there. We've got a great question coming from the Q&A. Uh, that follows on your, your topic of empathy. What have you done in your leadership roles that helps to create empathy in your leaders? This is a real challenge. It can make people uncomfortable, as you shared. Yeah. Well, you just keep doing it. Um, you know, you have to create that culture. You have to walk around. And uh, again, I go back to, you know, people are going to watch how you handle it, right? So if you're empathetic and you show concern for people and you know, somebody's having a bad day or somebody's had a, 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 you know, some significant life event, uh, you need to show it and you need to be there. And, you know, if you do it, then guess what? The, your people that work for you are going to do it. And um, it, it just, uh, it, it, you have to be visible. Leadership is visibility. Leadership is grossly uncomfortable. There's times you're going to do things. And I, I'll, I'll share another story. I, I had a situation once with a young man who's was going through some really terrible things. He asked me to go to a, 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 a support group with him. And then at the end of the support group, he said, I'd like to give you a hug. Um, you know, I'm not, a, you know, it was just, it, but it meant so much to him. And you forget the little things. I go back to that dumb analogy. It's the little things that you do dating to make a difference. And I think it's the little things that's walking into somebody's office and saying, hey, Hillary, you look like you're having a bad day. Tell me what's going on. Um, or, hey, Hillary, have you, why don't you go home today? Or why don't you go out and take a walk? Um, and, it, you know, just those little subtleties that will make a difference that says, 
you know, I understand and I, 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 I feel for you. It's, a, you know, we're all going through a lot right now. Yeah. We've got another good question coming in. Jack Welch, CEO of GE, said his biggest failure was not dealing with leaders who got results, but did not live the culture. Did you ever have to deal with that? And if so, what did you do? That's such a great question. It's such a tough thing. And um, it, it, I, we've all had those situations. And I had a case where we had a young man that uh, was on the fast track to potentially be sitting in my seat. Um, he had an ethical lapse that um, was, you know, it was an ethical lapse. And uh, his boss came into me and said, here's what happened. And I just looked at him and said, we got to get rid of him. Um, and it, it, it's the toughest thing you'll do because he was a very visible. Um, so we, we had to terminate this individual. Um, but we didn't make it public. You know, you don't do public hangings. You just do the right thing and you treat him with respect. But word gets around pretty quickly if you don't. And it, 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 you cannot allow people to not leave your culture and be in your leadership. And you, you coach them to the point where you just don't think it's him. Then you just got to make a decision. You got to get rid of them. You got to move on. Um, if you're going to live by the, the culture that you create, it can't just be words on a paper. It has to be actions that are far more important. And, you know, keeping one bad apple uh, or a person, everybody knows not living the culture. Everybody go, well, you know, so-and-so is a favorite, you know, it's just, you just can't do it. Um, and you have to you have to coach your people when they make mistakes that are wrong. You don't do it, you, you don't do it publicly, but you just want to say, hey, you know, you could have probably done. It. You know, quite frankly, we've all had those situations. You know, I had a number of times where I would do things that I knew were probably wrong, and somebody'd come in my office and say, yeah, I don't think you should have done that. And but that's the culture you create. We have that two way communication. You know, the the best things I could do is when you know Jim Ryan would come in and say, you know, you just really screwed up. Um, and you know, that's okay. You know, you, you, you accept that. So it seems that there's this kind of fine line between empathy and empathizing with, um, people that we work with and then, uh, forgiveness and then also holding people accountable. Yeah. How do you do that balance of accountability versus empathy? Mm -hmm. and forgiveness? Yeah, that's called leadership. Um, and it's tough, right? Because you, you, you want to create a culture and you want people to feel part of your family, part of your team and to be motivated. Uh, but yet you've got to deal with, you know, we're still got to hit the numbers. And, you know, I go back to the equation. If it's right for our associates, our clients and our community, it's going to be right for our shareholders. Generally, if they're not performing, it's not right for our associates, right? Or that's not right for our clients. And, you know, you still got to hit your numbers, but you, you don't, you know, one, one of the things that Jack Welch was also famous for is, he would always say that, you know, I'm going to eliminate the bottom 10%. And every year you'd go through that. And, you know, it's probably not in my mind, doesn't create a great um, collegial culture or culture of inclusivity. Uh, it's really a performance-based culture. And I think you can balance the culture that we have at Old National with a performance culture, you know, it, but it takes, it, you know, it'll go back to what I also said. It, it takes a longer view. You need to have a board of directors that understands you're trying to do something significant here and create a long-term culture that is of value. And you have to have patient uh, bosses. In our case, we had a great board of directors and shareholders that understood what we were trying to do. But, um, and then, you know, you kind of self-police. If, you know, 90% of the folks are working hard and doing the right thing, 
yeah, people are going to get that message pretty quickly. So, um, but again, I think that's the collegial uh, culture you want to uh, create. You know, and, and by no means does that mean we weren't tough or that we didn't expect things. Uh, I think, you know, um, again, I'm going to use Jim as an example, Jim Ryan, who is one of the most dedicated, demanding people I've ever seen, but he is the most compassionate person I've ever been around. He's, you know, he's the smartest guy I've ever worked with. He's got the biggest heart, but yet he doesn't put up with any, you know, uh, he's, he's going to drive his people and he's going to do it, but he's going to do it in a fair way. During this time of um, social distancing in the midst of the pandemic, we've talked a lot about building empathy and sort of holding people accountable. How do we do all of that virtually? Yeah. Can you kind of tips on that? Because it's yeah, hard to sort of walk up and down the halls and, and do sort of your check-in. Yeah. What, yeah. what tips would you give to, to maintain connected and to continue that empathy yeah. in a virtual yeah. world? It's so tough, um, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm retired, so it's, uh, it's a little easier for me to say this, but there are other means of communication. There's the telephone, there's text, there's email. Um, it's just little notes, you know. Um, it's sending somebody a text and saying, you know, hey, Michael, um, you know, how the kids doing? Um, or, you know, you know, Hillary, you know, I saw you had a really tough uh, day. You know, I'm just here for you. Um, it's just checking in with people. Um, and, you know, um, in today's digital world and, you know, virtual world, maybe that's the wave of the future. I'm not so sure, but uh, virtual hugs, uh, you know, or it's just, you know, people just want to know that you care. And I guess it doesn't really matter how you show that if in, in today's world, but, um, you know, and it's a subtlety of, you know, it just, uh, you know, I was reading an article in today's uh, New York Times about, a, uh, you know, during the pandemic, do you tell people that, you know, somebody's got COVID in your workplace or you just tell the people around them? So you're in a building of 300 people. Do you just tell the 20 people that this person works with that you tell all 300? In my mind, it's a no-brainer. You tell everybody because that creates a culture that you're being transparent, you're being inclusive, and you care. Um, and so there's a, you know, that's a big example, but, you know, it's the subtle things of you know, just dropping a note saying, hey, Jenny, you did a great job at organizing this call today. Uh, I really appreciate it. You know, that goes a long way. Um, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, for you, Hillary, that, that President Danko wanted to do the introduction, um, that's a real testament to you. Uh, and I think it's a testament to what you do. Um, 2020 has been a remarkable year for many reasons, um, as we've talked about. Um, when you look back on it, um, with all of your years of experience uh, in a leadership role, old national, what do you think is going to be the lasting impact on 2020 of 2020 on the way we work and the way we interact with our colleagues and our clients? Yeah, I'm going to be in a minority probably in this because I think a lot of people are saying that we're going to go to a more virtual environment and that you know people are going to be working from home. And I, I think over time, what we're going to have learned, Hillary, is culture needs to have people that are in the office or that they're interacting. Um, uh, you know, you can, you can get work done virtually. It's really hard to build uh, a sustainable culture virtually. And particularly as you have new hires or, you know, interns or whatever. So I think we're going to learn a lesson that, you know, there are things you can do virtually, but the culture still is important. And, 
you know, the, the sooner we can get people that you can interact with. Some of the best days I had is just, you know, I'd walk around and, you know, I, I, Jim Ryan or Jim Sangren or Kathy Shetland and just having a conversation by the coffee pot. And some of the greatest ideas you have are those that come with the most untimely uh, moments. And I think we're going to learn that those untimely moments are important to any company. Um, but yet safety is first, you know, back to that, you know, concern, you want to make sure you do it in a safe way. And that, um, you know, clearly, you know, and probably the best outtake of the virtuality of this environment is, you know, for folks that are balancing work family, you know, it's okay. You know, if you've got kids at home that are sick, guess what? You can work at home. There's nothing that says you can't. And we've all learned it. We've, and we've all had those embarrassing interruptions, right? When, you know, our child walks in and says, you know, mommy, I want this, but you know, it's okay. That's life. And uh, I think that's, uh, you know, I think we've all become much more, um, you know, when I started, uh, we had to wear white button down shirts, black wingtips, dark suits and a hat, you know, today, you know, nobody wears ties. So the world changes. And I think we're all becoming a little more flexible. Okay. We've talked a lot about old nationals kind of core ethical principles. I wonder if you would be willing to share Bob Jones's personal ethical principles. What makes you tick and what makes you feel like I did the right thing today? Yeah, um, such a great question. So for me, it's seeing people grow and seeing people develop and building those relationships. And, and by the relationship, I think it's important to realize it's, it's a business relationship, but it's, it's really deeply personal. Um, you know, for me, um, having Jim Ryan sitting where he sits today is just to me one of the, you know, it's probably one of my greatest accomplishments. Um, he's doing a far better job than I ever did. Um, you know, but there's a piece of me there somewhere that, you know, every so often he'll send me a text. I did a Bobism today, which is I'm sure getting fewer and fewer. Uh, but, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, Hillary, I was raised by my grandmother, a single parent household and, she always said, if you can go to bed at night, lay your head in a pillow and think you did the thing right, then you're okay. And I think I always wanted to make sure that my people were taken care of, my, my, my folks were energized, um, that, you know, the company was in good stead and I could lay my head down and feel very comfortable and, and not have to worry about, you know, some story I made up or lie that I gave. And, uh, you know, and I think there's a moral obligation for CEOs to, you know, I, I believe firmly that our job is to project that image of ethics and values in today's environment, you know, as we saw with our Tyler Schultz, I mean, you know, you know, probably the worst situation is you had all those people that did the wrong thing and, you know, but it happens every week we pick up the paper and, you know, whether it's the McDonald's CEO that is off, you know, philandering and doing things he shouldn't do or, people that leave and get golden parachutes for $30 million when they've done an unethical act. It just makes no sense to me. So I think it's just, if, you know, simple me says, if you do what's right, you know, it's a lot easier in life. Yeah. And you talk about, um, you know, the idea of sort of developing young talent and bringing someone along and that that's a, a great accomplishment. Um, I wonder if you would be willing to share some information about your mentors and oh. the sort of brought, Brought you along. Yeah, there's far too many to list them all because I'm not a very smart guy, so I needed all the help I could get. Um, you know, I'll start with, uh, you know, my college football coach. Um, you know, I was a fairly good high school football player, uh, 
aspirations to play, you know, big time college football. Got recruited by a few large schools, West Virginia, a few others. Went to this little school in Ashland, Ohio, with a coach that looked a little like Joe Paterno. And he looked at me and said, you know, Bob, you better get a good education because you're really just not that good a football player. Um, but it was a life lesson for me that said, you know what, you know, and I went from a, a mediocre academic performer in high school to a pretty, you know, I did pretty well in college. Um, got hired by uh, Key Corp was Society Bank then. Met a guy named Steve Wall, who for 40 plus years has been my mentor. Uh, Steve was a guy that lived and breathed people and did things that were right and uh, just was just a wonderful mentor. And to this day, I still call him every so often. You know, and I always tell the story. I, I took the job at Old National because when I walked into the room to interview to be the CEO, that's their chairman of the board, Larry Dunnigan, it just, um, you just felt this compassion around this man and his passion and this commitment. And you wanted to work for him. You wanted to do the right thing. And, you know, Larry is still a very, very dear friend and a guy that I owe so much to. And, you know, just was always there for me when I needed somebody. Mm-hmm. And what advice would you give uh, for people who are in that mentor role now about how best to sort of support and bring along their yeah, time? So, so, you know, mentoring is not an academic exercise. Um, so many companies put in mentoring programs and you fill out the sheets and said, you know, I met with Rob today. We discussed this. And yeah, there's a lot of informality to mentoring. Um, I'm going to again pick on my dear friend, Jim Ryan. Uh, we tra- I, I, I spent more time for many years with Jim Ryan than I did my wife because we would travel to investor conferences and we would do all these things. You know, we were eating dinner together. We were in airplanes together, airports together. And just, you know, those subtlety conversations that you can have and just always remembering that you're trying to bring somebody along and it, it, don't treat it as an academic exercise. You treat it as a relationship. And, you know, but, you know, some of the greatest moments of your life are going to be when you see people you've mentored achieve things and achieve success. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just a great feeling. And, you know, it's about paying forward, right? We've all had people that have helped us and, you know, now we can pay it forward by seeing other people succeed. We've got a question in the Q&A along lines of mentorship. Um, how might you distinguish the difference between mentorship and sponsorship? And how important are both concepts? Yeah, uh, great question. Um, so mentorship is more of a, um, a building relationship where a mentor is your coach. He or she is your advisor. Um, they're there to support you in bad times. They're there to kick your uh, tail when you do things wrong, but they're also there to help you. A, a sponsor is somebody that is there to pull you along in your career a lot of times. Uh, and in my case, Steve Wall, who was, is, is my mentor uh, uh, for many, many years, he was both for me. Um, you know, he pulled me along and put me in positions that I was like, you know, why am I doing this? Um, but yet he was always there to mentor me as well. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fine line difference, but I think a sponsor is somebody that kind of helps you grow by stretching you. A mentor helps you grow by uh, coaching you. Bob, I wonder if you would share um, what your hardest leadership lesson has been. Um, <laughs> patience is a virtue. Um, uh, you know, um, my greatest 
mistakes I've ever made in my career was when I became impatient and when people wouldn't get to where I wanted them to be as quickly as I wanted them to be. It sometimes, it sometimes didn't transform into the most positive behavior. And so you have to learn, and it goes back to our discussion about diversity and inclusion, that not everybody thinks and acts like you do. And um, I had to learn a lot of patience. And, um, you know, I'm still not the most patient person in the world, but I think we all, we all need to remember we've got warts, we've got flat spots and things that we have to work on. And, you know, I used to tell my wife every, every quarter I had board meetings at Old National, and I'd say, you know, this could be my last board meeting, I could get fired. Um, you know, I, and I lived every day with the belief if I didn't do as best I could, that I could get fired. And it's, it's not the greatest feeling in the world, but, you know, part of that's the impatience of trying to get things done. And um, I think you learn patience comes with time, but I would also argue that having a little of that impatience in, in helps drive things. And just, I had to learn how to use that in a different way than just um, frustration. Sometimes it was how to better coach, um, but I think any leader know, needs to know that they've all got faults. We've all got faults, right? Um, and if you're not learning every day, then you're not a very good leader. And, you know, it's, and it's true in life. And, you know, one, one of the greatest joys of leadership is learning how to do better. And, you know, we need to know that every day you do something, you're trying to learn and do it better. And how would you coach leaders to gain that kind of self-awareness to recognize where their faults and their flaws are and develop a plan to work on them and improve yeah, don't, them better. Yeah, don't, don't be afraid of feedback and encourage feedback. Um, you know, what you don't want to create is an environment, you know, hey, I wasn't perfect at it. There's, you know, um, you know, but you want people that you can trust to come in and say, you know, you probably shouldn't have done that or you could do it better. And, you know, I think of my time at Old National, Larry Dunnigan was a great guy that would give me terrific feedback. Always made me feel good when he gave it, but he was usually coaching hard. Uh, you know, Jim would be one that would come in and, you know, tell me I screwed up. Uh, you know, a lot of people would, but you have to create a, a two-way feedback. It's just not you giving feedback to your people. You need to get feedback from him. And I worked for a guy that did a wonderful thing, uh, which is a, a live 360 um, review. So, I, you know, he would send on memos to people that worked with me and it would, you know, get feedback and he would give me great feedback. Um, and so at Old National, our board of directors did that. All 13 members of the board would give feedback. And so I'd sit at the table and at the board table and each one would go through their feedback. And I can tell you that while it wasn't roses and champagne, particularly some of our darkest times, and you can't get defensive. And again, that's one of my great faults is getting defensive, but you, you have to do it. And you need to just accept it, you know, accept that we all have, we all have challenges. And, uh, uh, be willing to accept them uh, and build upon them, uh, you know, because if not, at some stage, you're going to, you know, Peter Principle, right? You, you're not going to grow. Um, if you're not growing every day, then you're not going to be able to move to where you need to be. Thanks. And I have one last question I'd like to close with. Who are your um, sort of aspirant leaders? Do you have leaders that you really, really admire and think, man, I'd like to be like that person? Hmm. Yeah. Um, so a lot of them, um, you know, I'm going to, in, in the banking industry, um, I really admire Jamie Dimon and what he's done. Um, you, you'll hear good and bad about Jamie Dimon, but he's built a tremendous company 
Um, but he's, I think he's done it in the right way. Now, you know, we all have challenges that happen with the London whale and some other things, but I think what Jamie Dimon did was pretty terrific. And, um, you know, he's done it and he, he's maintained it. Um, um, you know, and I'm going back to mentors, you know, uh, I, I had a boss, Henry Meyer, when I was at Key Corp, he was chairman and CEO and Henry was a guy that uh, would ride the elevator and you know, he'd go down and have lunch with everybody. He'd sit at a table of associates and we were a company of 30 some thousand employees and, you know, $80 billion in size, but Henry was just one of us. And that's something that always stuck in my mind that, you know, none of us are too big to be, you know, we're all the same. Right. Um, so I'm a political science major by background and I love politics, even in today's divisive world. And, you know, so many times you think about the, the, the great politicians, whether it's Abraham Lincoln's or FDR or Ronald Reagan, but, you know, one that I've always admired is Gerald Ford. Um, you know, Gerald Ford didn't want to be president. Um, Gerald Ford had to make one of the hardest decisions of his life knowing that it was going to cost him his future. And that was to pardon Richard Nixon because it was good for the country. And, you know, that's leadership, right? Uh, he didn't, he could have easily just let the world continue to fall apart, kind of, you know, and all the divisiveness that was going to go on with around the Watergate and Nixon. But he just said, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice my future for the betterment of the country. And, you know, that's to me called leadership. Um, and, you know, I've always tried to do what I thought was the right thing for the long term. And, you know, in, in, you know, many times you take the blame for what other people have done uh, and deflect because that's the right thing to do. You know, you're the leader. So, um, and, you know, you admire young leaders today. I mean, I look at, uh, you know, some of the, the, the folks that are leading institutions today and, you know, the great things they're doing. It's just, a, it's, it's marvelous to see what's happening. So. I, you know, I would just say this, Hillary, there, I think despite the tumultuous times we're living in, there is more good than bad that is happening in many cases. And we're seeing some, some remarkable things that, you know, when we come through this, and this, I'm a, I, I was a product of the 60s, and it feels a lot like the 60s right now. But, you know, we came through it. Um, we're resourceful. We have great leaders. We'll figure it out. But, um, you know, all, each and every one of us is a leader in some way or another. Great. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Bob. It has been an absolute pleasure um, being with you today. I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Lacey School of Business Ethics Series brought to you by Old National Bank. The Lacey School of Business podcast channel is available through all podcast platforms. Please download and feel free to share a comment and also provide a rating. Thank you.